Welcome to Stories from a Nomadic Citizen, where I share stories about culture, identity, and transitions from the lens of a third culture kid who has lived around the world. This is Grace, and I am recording this from Taipei, Taiwan. This episode features a conversation that I had with my cousin Margaret back in May when I was still in the U.S. We opened up about how the rise in anti-Asian racism during the pandemic had affected us, as well as reflecting on how our racial identity has shaped us throughout our lives. Before we start, I want to give a heads up that a word or two may be cut out at some points when Margaret and I were talking at the same time due to some audio issues. Also, given the nature of the topic, I want to note in advance that some listeners may find parts of the conversation to be triggering and upsetting. With that said, we do start off on a more cheerful note with Margaret sharing a bit about her background. My name is Margaret. I am very lucky to be your cousin, but also friends, friends first, cousin second, Um, and born and raised in Dallas, Texas. I've lived all around the U.S. just due to my different interests, different career paths. And now I'm a physician um, living currently in West Texas and about to move to Los Angeles. That is so amazing. (laughs) I'm so proud to be your friend and cousin. Oh, thanks. I am going to be your friend and cousin as well. I feel like we've had such an interesting, like, relationship and friendship ever since we were like young um, because I remember you being like very very small <laughs> and at our house and then like we've kind of grown up together now so see the funny thing is I don't actually remember being in your house I know I have been to your house I don't remember a single bit about it yeah um, so the first memory I have of you is actually when you know we were both in Taiwan I think it was 2004 <laughs> In Hualien. Yeah, and you were in high school. So it's funny because, like, I knew you existed, right? <laughs> but up until, I guess, that point, I think I was in, like, my early teens. I, like, yeah. I had no sort of memory of spending time with you right. you know, as a cousin, which... Like, didn't when you were here. It was very just, like, oh, family is over. And then I feel like in Taiwan is when we were like, oh, we're cool. Like, this is cool. (laughs) I remember you were like this, like Brazilian, like gorgeous. Oh gosh. Like (laughs) you, you like biked up this hill and I was worn out like halfway through. I was like, okay, I got to get off. I can't do this hill anymore. And you were just chugging along and you were just like, like bronze and just so cool. And I was like, dang, she's really cool. And yeah, I feel like we've sort of been friends ever since. That's so funny that you, you <laughs> thought of that, you know, your thought that way, I mean. Yeah. Actually, that that's sort of a good segue-ish. Um, because when you said you thought, oh, like I'm all like bronze, quote unquote bronze. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like that was me trying to be more Brazilian and be less. Asian, because at least in Taiwan, I'm sure you know that it's all about being very pale, right? You don't want to, you don't want to be tanned. It's like sort of looked at, looked down upon, um, and you, you know, have an umbrella to, you know, shield yourself when it's super, super sunny outside. Um, 
But yeah, like I, I haven't thought much about sort of how I tried to be in a way less Asian um, mm. until like more recently mm-hmm. in recent years and much more acutely, like obviously with the recent rise in yeah, anti-Asian hate crime and mm-hmm. just the fact that it's become such a like national and even somewhat of a global narrative. There's so much more spotlight on it um, that, yeah, it's, it's been on my mind a lot. I, I'm curious, like, how you feel um, with everything that's been going on. Yeah, so... And I'd be curious to hear how you have handled it, especially now with your transition going abroad again. Um, But so about a year ago, um, when the first, you know, rhetoric of the Chinese virus and the Kung flu came out, I was in Sprouts, like a grocery store, and I was doing my grocery shopping. This guy had come behind me and I was wearing a mask because I was already paranoid at the time being a physician in this deadly virus. And he was not. And a lot of people in West Texas weren't. Um, But he came up behind me and he was like, along the lines of go back to where you came from, like the virus. And then stopped me throughout Sprouts as I was buying my produce. I eventually just left because he was behind me the entire time and just like, really angry, like huffing and puffing the entire time. And I didn't feel safe. And so I left. And for me, it was really interesting because reflecting on that, I was like, oh, it's just a one-off. Like, it's just this random person saying this to me and doing this. And so fast forward like a year later and these anti-Asian hate crimes sort of coming to light, especially with the Atlanta shooting. And then shortly after, one of my really good friends in New York, um, she's a pediatric ICU fellow. Her student, who's fully Asian, um, she's half Filipino, my friend, but her medical student, fully Asian, had a knife drawn out on her because the dad of their patient blamed her for making his daughter sick because she's Asian. And so I think it came sort of to a head then because I was like, well, I live in West Texas, super conservative West Texas. And this is happening in New York. And I've had friends in San Francisco that have sort of touted similar stories that I'm like, what chances do I have coming out of Texas unscathed, right? Coming out of Texas without any sort of harm to me or some threats or something. And so I just like broke down and cried because I was like, I never felt so fearful of how I looked. And, you know, and I think that, I think that's a lot, uh, you know, a privilege that I've had for a long time. And, and then subsequently felt guilty for our black brothers and sisters who have felt this for generations. Right. Like, and, and so I always thought I knew what that was like, but I didn't really know until that moment. Um, And then, you know, I just hear a ton of stories about, you know, anti-Asian elderly hate crimes. And so worried about my parents, Um, you know, hate crimes to like local businesses that are Asian run. I mean, there was even a sign in Lubbock in West Texas that said um, it was like a marquee outside of a store 
that said, slap China down like the bitches they are in front of the door sign. And I was like, you know, like I, I had to really think to myself, okay, if I go grocery shopping late at night, do I feel comfortable? And the answer is no. Right. And so I have friends that are so sweet that are like, will come and join you on your HEB runs or will come and make sure that, you know, you're safe or you have company or you're not alone. And for me, I think that was just a huge hit in my face of what kind of America am I living in? This isn't freedom anymore. This isn't the sort of America that we were raised to understand and have all these freedoms and have all of this, you know, the American dream like, this is not it. And so I think I've come through phases and it comes and goes of fear and then trying to make a difference and then feeling guilty, but then also, you know, under trying to understand our sort of ugly history of America and then trying to grapple with my own sense of safety um, and what that means for my time, you know, in the U S and I don't, I don't even know if I like want to stay in the U S at this point. And so, yeah, it's, it's been like, it's been such a roller coaster. Um, but again, to see how you have dealt with it and also in terms of your anticipated next chapter. Yeah. I've, I've felt very similarly in terms of fearing for my safety I think at this very moment in in recent weeks, I've been feeling a little better, like a bit less paranoid. But for, I would say at least a couple of weeks, I felt such a heightened sense of awareness when I was walking outside. I honestly, I think I was just way too paranoid. If someone was going to like walk an inch near me, my heart would be a little faster. And I mean, I, I don't want to think that's just like, me overreacting, but it's from a very valid place. Yes. Um, it's interesting because even with the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, like you see it on the news, like what you said earlier, you thought, okay, it's just a one-off because mm-hmm. I've often felt the no, this is just like an exception. Before the pandemic, you know, my parents and I, we've experienced random incidents of race, but very rarely have at least I felt where I was actually in danger. And I wouldn't say I've experienced incidents, you know, since the pandemic started where I have felt um, actually in danger because of my race. But I do remember just like once when it was still in the beginning, when people were still going out Uh, in New York, I was doing my laundry at the laundromat and this woman kept staring at me and like looked at me really angrily. I I don't know why. We know what. I mean, I didn't want to think that way because she didn't say anything. Right. Yeah. So I can't really make any assumptions, but in my head, I was just like, well, I I don't know what else, you know, Right. If, if not that. I've tried to just put it in the back of my mind, I think whenever I see something in the news until actually this was uh, when I was having a therapy session, my therapist asked me, how am I feeling? Just kind of like point blank uh, about the recent rise in 
anti-Asian hate crimes. And to be honest, I, I, I mean, I told her, I think I've just like tried to push it away under a rug, like not really think about it that much. And afterwards, I feel like it, it sort of brought a wave of emotions looking back where perhaps I've experienced microaggressions, but I just, you know, sort of brush them aside thinking it's fine. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, I think I'm being a little too sensitive. And then actually that was the night when I had my therapy session, that was the night before um, the Atlanta shootings, or actually that was the same night, but I only found out the next morning about it. And when I found out the next morning, I, I, it felt, well, obviously it was, it was awful. Like it made me feel sick, but it, it also just felt really weird because I had been thinking about it the previous night because my therapist brought it up and I hadn't really been thinking about it that acutely for a while um, of just certain things that I think even my friends have said that maybe say if I do or say something or the way I cook something, like if that's kind of different, it's less so to do with my individual self and preferences. And oh, is it cultural or is this how like people cook this in Taiwan? Most of the time, it's coming from a place of maybe just curiosity. And I totally understand. But I think, especially recently, right, when you sort of are just more aware and paranoid, and at least for me, I've been thinking about such instances where I've felt in that moment, like, oh, I wouldn't say that's cultural, but okay. Yeah, I think it it made me realize, to be honest, that this is tying back to what I was saying earlier, how I was trying to be less Asian subconsciously when I was growing up in places that really I was either the only or like out of the two uh, Asian people in a class. Mm-hmm. This was the, I was, I think I was the only Asian girl in our class in Brazil, like in my grade, uh, but it was a small school and in Portugal, I think there was one other, yeah, there was one Korean girl in my grade um, and oftentimes we'd sort of be lumped together. Like if we did something right, you know, mm-hmm. they'd compare us. And I had, I remember I had a really good friend, um, who, yeah, would like, she was friends with both of us. We'd often hang out together, had sleepovers, but, um, I'm pretty sure she, she had, you know, pulled her eyelids multiple times, like, um, and would say certain things about what we did or even our body parts that were like, oh, this is like more Asian, always in a joking manner. I didn't feel hurt by it, but it was something I think that over time I internalized and it it just makes me sad that I felt that way, that I was ashamed of being Asian Mm. uh, and then tried to be more like the people that were the majority, like in Brazil, in Portugal, and I remember when I found out I was going back to Taiwan because my dad was retiring. I mean, I would say it was more like negative emotions because obviously when you're a teenager, you don't want to leave a right. place that you've lived and you have friends and school and whatnot. But it was also a little different in the sense of, oh, so I'm going to be in a place where it's majority Asian. Like it's very different. It's it's almost like reverse culture shock and and like I said, I was trying to push away that part of my identity, but now I'm super glad that I was able to go back. And I think that really helped in making me appreciate Taiwan more. 
Mm-hmm. Although I, I feel like I should note that the high school that I went to was still a little different. It wasn't like your average local school. And most people were American born or had lived in other places outside of Taiwan, like myself. And I would say, I'm again, making like the generalization here that uh, I think we all in a way try to be more American Mm-hmm. Like it was cool if you went to the U.S. in the summers or it was right. cool to go to like Chili's in Taipei. Um, mm-hmm. Like we'd go up to Taipei and go to Chili's. Uh, right. And it's like, why? I'm thinking back now, like why would we go to Chili's in Taiwan? Like there is so much good food in Taiwan and Chili's right? is not one of them. No. But we would do that. And it's, yeah, I don't know how I how I could verbalize it, but I just feel kind of like, not good about that right but also recognize oh that's that's because like we're not in the narr- like the main narrative right? right so we want to be more like the mainstream i mean i think it was interesting you say that because i you know went back to taiwan ever since i was little and i remember a distinct time that all of a sudden it became westernized right like McDonald's were happening and Starbucks were happening. And I was like, this isn't the Taiwan I knew. And I felt like, you know, and there was all the movie theaters showed American movies. And I wonder like how that happened, right? Like how did the Westernization of Asia happen? And why was, why was the U S like the cool kid to like emulate, right? Like where did this come from? Right? Well, like, that's it's, <laughs> I mean, it is the whole, I think after World War II, America just became the superpower. Yeah. And that translated into pop culture. Right. That's fair. But, but I'm curious uh, how it was like for you growing up in Plano, Texas, if there were a lot of Asians as well, like in your school, how that was. And also how you felt about like being Taiwanese American. And I remember if I'm correct that you went to Chinese school, right? I did throughout my my senior year and I'm pretty proud of it. Um, So interestingly, Plano is pretty heavily populated in Asian Americans. And so for example, my high school was about a quarter Asians. And so it never felt weird or different to be in that setting. I just remembered it was a very competitive setting because all of the parents knew each other and everybody compared grades and it was just very, it was a lot. Um, But when I went to college, I sort of rejected that homogeneity of Asians and only being around Asians and only having Asian friends. And so I think college is when I really branched out. And then after that, living everywhere, I sort of, maybe like opposite of you in a little bit of ways, really enjoyed being that maybe token Asian or one of the few Asians because I stood out. And so that felt cool for me. Like I have something else that other people don't have just by being Asian American. Um, And so I think after that, I really appreciated being Asian American. Um, And in addition to that, having some of the cultural and 
you know, traditional things passed on to me, including like Chinese school. Um, I'm very glad that I can still speak fluently and can sort of read and write and learned how to do Chinese calligraphy and learned how to play with the Chinese yo-yo and, and learned traditional Chinese dances and sang traditional Chinese songs. And I think that was something I didn't appreciate, obviously, when I was growing up, because what kid wants to spend their Sunday morning for like four or five hours, right? Like going to Chinese school, more school. (laughs) But in retrospect, it was so fun. Um, And so I think I had a very um, bubbled, I guess, perspective of what it was like being Asian American because our community was so heavily Asian American that I felt secure enough being Asian American in non-diverse populations, if that makes sense. Um, And so like, yeah, when I went to like rural Arkansas, where I was literally the token Asian, I was like, this is cool. I get to sort of stand out. Um, And, you know, being now in West Texas, I'm like, cool. I get to stand out until recently, until this past sort of year or so. Um, And so I've always sort of liked being unique, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I feel you in that sense because I did enjoy being amongst the few, right, in Brazil and and Portugal, which is why I think when I realized I was going back to Taiwan, that it was a bit of like not something I was looking forward to in in that respect, but mm. I. Yeah, what I was saying earlier is that looking back at it now, that even though I, yeah, uh, liked it, I think part of it was because that I I wanted to, in a yeah, be different, but at the same time, be like the rest of them. It's sort of a weird feeling to describe, like be unique, uh, but also be accepted right yeah (laughs) it's yeah it's weird but I definitely wouldn't say I was like oh proud to be I I think it was like more oh almost like being exoticized um Mm. and I didn't really see it that way before but I think I was in a way like I represented all of Asia essentially and in a way I was like okay this is cool but looking back at it now I I realize well I don't think that was coming from sort of the best place. Yeah. Well, so then let me ask you this. Um, So there's a lot of, in media, especially fetishization of Asian women. And so I've been thinking about this. Like, I remember being somewhere and they were like, oh, but you're an Asian girl. So all the guys will try to go after you. I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, it's like the new, like, it's the latest thing. And it's like the cool thing for guys to like date Asian women. Um, and subsequently I haven't dated a lot of Asian men. Um, just happens with life. Um, so how do you feel about that? And I wonder if that has ever played a role in your own sort of perceptions of yourself. To be honest, I didn't really know that or was aware of that until honestly really recently when I've been reading up um 
more about the relationship between America's colonial past and military presence in Asia uh, and how that ties it has tied into the fetishization of women of Asian women. Again, this is very America centric. Uh, I, I don't know how it is in other Western nations, especially the places I lived in Brazil and Portugal, because I was quite young at the time. But I, but again, because I feel like American pop culture, it's just all over the place that in a way it does, it does permeate through other places and, and cultures. Um, I don't remember at least anyone saying, oh, like you'll get more people interested in you because you're Asian. Uh, what I would say though, is that not sort of the fetishization, but the image of Asian women being really submissive and obedient and mm -hmm. quiet, uh, that has definitely played, I would say, a bigger role in me trying to put myself out there, especially, I would mm -hmm. say, yeah, since after college in the workplace, or even just doing this podcast uh, and... And being direct, I, I think in many situations, like in the professional setting and, and personal relationships, um, or even just, yeah, talking to strangers, like I, I do this almost not really like, oh yeah, I want to be confident. I, I want to uh, project myself this way, but it's almost more so as, as, as a way to show that, oh, I am not your typical Asian woman, right. you know, and so perhaps the result of that is positive, but it's coming from this perception, right, that I think a lot of us Asian women are trying to fight back. Mm. That's totally fair. I have a mouth on me, but you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, it's really hard for me to have a filter, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so then let me ask you, in terms of you moving to another country, and I'm, I don't really know what it's like in the UK or, you know, um, in England of that type of like the stereotypes or like the culture or the perceptions. So how do you feel, one, how do you feel about leaving the US in sort of this recent narrative of Asian Americans and then two how do you feel like it will change how you are in the UK to be honest I don't think it would be that different mm -hmm. uh, I've read about uh, news reports of anti-Asian hate crimes there as well uh, I think the main difference well I mean this isn't related to race but the fact that uh, there's just more guns in America right? It's more easily accessible. So that results in more deadly violence. But I think it's, it's the same in a lot of other places where, you know, Asians are the minority. Um, actually, that reminds me, I found this podcast last year called, But Where Are You From? I can include this in the episode notes as a recommendation. Uh, but it's also hosted by someone who uh, is not a 
professional podcaster and she's a British born Chinese. So it's been interesting listening to her podcast episodes because it's also very personal. She shares a lot, which I sort of am very impressed by just, you know, how vulnerable she's willing to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, But through her and also recently through other posts on social media, uh, yeah, there's various examples of of similar things in the UK. So one example recently that I saw is that actually uh, on the front page of the Times, I think that's the name of the newsletter, and the main headline was about Prince Philip's funeral. And apparently, I mean, I, I didn't know this, but during a trip a long time ago, maybe in the 80s, to China, he had said something about slitty eyes. Like, that's what he said. Kind of, like, joking about it. Um, Like, the longer you stay here, like, the more likely it is you'd get slitty eyes. I I think that was something along the lines of what he had said. And this reporter had, yeah, written a short piece, uh, you know, about Prince Philip and wrote that despite his gaffes, and insensitive jokes. Again, I don't have it word for word, but that's the gist. Despite that, we secretly enjoyed them or something like that. Like saying that, yeah, he he made these insensitive jokes and remarks, but actually like we secretly enjoyed them. And I was just horrified by that. And, and another thing I found out actually, this is through the But Where Are You From podcast is, I think it was the BBC. They ran the story about, how this one city in the UK, I can't remember the city's name, uh, but I think it has a very low percentage of Asian population. And they were in a lockdown last year. And for the picture of the story, they um, had included a picture of two Asian women wearing masks. And it was very unlikely that that's that was actually like people from that city. Right. Um, and so... I believe she started this petition to get that picture removed. And, I, and I'm and i pretty sure it did ultimately get removed. So um, props to her. Yeah. But yeah, I think the reality is that I'm relatively <laughs> uh, sure that at one point or another, if I stay in the UK long enough, I'll, I'll you know, face like similar incidents. Yeah. Um, maybe super subtle. Uh, But I think what's changed now is like, now I am much more aware, whereas before, even if it was was subtle and maybe I noticed something, I just, yeah, I just didn't think much about it, um, brushed it off. But now I, yeah, I just feel, feel like I need to be more vocal, right? And and do something about it. But sometimes I don't really know what to do either. Like as an Asian woman, yeah, I can try to amplify my voice. Um, But sometimes, yeah, it seems like just very sort of personal feelings and incidents. And it's hard to to make sense of all of it. Yeah, Um, sure. Um, do you feel like you've become more vocal with microaggressions then? Yes, because 
I actually told a friend, um, a couple of friends, um, that this was how I felt about what they said and that I know they weren't coming from a place of malice at all. Um, but this is how it made me feel. And yeah, I don't think I would have done that if it wasn't for all this. That made me just reflect so much more on okay. how I feel about being Asian and all the experiences from when I was really little, these things that I sort of forgotten about. But then when I, when my therapist asked me, I think they all sort of sprang up out of nowhere. Like in one of my earlier episodes, I mentioned about this incident of um, someone saying back in sixth grade at a sleepover when we were watching a world cup match between Brazil and China, that China lost um, pretty badly. I think it was four zero. The friend said, Oh, you know, Chinese people can't play soccer or something along those lines. And I think it's something that it's kind of normal for, I don't know if normal is the right word, but okay. It's like one of those things that I'd let it slip by because it's about a game or it's about a game between two countries and one country lost badly. So you can just say, Oh yeah. Like maybe in, you know, with the benefit of the doubt, that person was just thinking in their head, like this team, the, the China Chinese team can't play, right? right? Right. But clearly it had some of an impact because I remember and I don't remember anything else from that sleepover, you know? Uh-huh. Um so yeah, I've I, I feel I've become more vocal, but like I also don't really know what to say. Um mm-hmm. Even doing this podcast, like I'm finding it hard to locate the right words to describe how I feel. Right. I think that's understandable too. Um, so then when you, when somebody, or let me ask this, um, how would you want, say someone like wants you to know that they're an ally, um, how would you want them to approach you? I think it's, I don't see one way to come about it. I think as long as the way they're communicating shows that they show a genuine, not just concern for me, you know, but a genuine interest in the wider conversation and what could be done. I think it's important to learn about the history because I feel, and this is something I I also listened to recently that again, I, I, even though I had an American education, I don't know how much of it was the same to, you know, the local schools in the U.S. Mm. when I went to American schools abroad. Uh, but maybe, you know, you can tell me more about this. Like, how much of what you learn, say, in history um, or social studies, were there anything about, you know, Asian American contributions, right, to to the building of this country and like to the way it is today, because I think, yeah, part of that is, is just because Asian Americans are left out. Um, and I think this applies to other countries where there's a significant Asian population as well that perpetuates, you know, the, the foreigner image of Asians. For sure. I mean, I think in general, 
American education is horrible about teaching its own history. It leaves out a lot of, again, the ugly parts of the choices that were made because it's sort of frowned upon. But if we never learn about it, then history will continue repeating itself, right? And so I barely learned about even the Japanese, like the internment camps. Like I, mm-hmm. it was maybe like, you know, two pages in my like thick history, you know, textbook. And it was like, not even, it didn't even really begin to capture the cruelty of it all, you know, it, and there's in, in amongst so many other things, right. Like the Vietnam war, like there was nothing about like the people of Vietnam. It was just how we did as a country, right. Like it was so skewed and I mean, this is, I think, true for like every sort of ugly part of the U.S., you know, even like slavery, there was, you know, some some textbooks are like, oh, it was just due to states' rights. That's why the Civil War happened. No, it was due to slavery. Like, let's just be real about what, how ugly our history is. And so I think, I mean, the U.S. education, yeah, does a horrible job with it. Um, and then thinking about like, in terms of being a foreigner, So whenever I would go visit Taiwan, people always knew that I wasn't from Taiwan. Eventually, I think I dressed enough that I can sort of blend in with the American crowd and with the Taiwanese crowd and Asian crowd because of the westernization or, you know, whatever fashion. But the moment I like opened my mouth, they were like, oh, you're not from here. And, And so, you know, thinking about being a foreigner, then I'm a foreigner everywhere, right? There's no place that I feel like I'm myself, I guess, or like I like I belong to these people because I was born and raised here. Um, you know, I maybe speak Chinese with a little bit of an American accent <laughs> and, you know, but then here I look a certain way. And so you know, thinking about that, but the, I guess, identity that I have the strongest is being American, Asian American, right? Like that is where I feel like I quote unquote belong. And yet I think in recent history, it's like, well, all of these like anti-Asian hate crimes, like even the term, like go back to where you came from. And I'm like, my mom's womb. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like I was born in Dallas, like, <laughs> and I don't know. It's just like, it's very, it's a very interesting thing in terms of like, well, I'm a foreigner than everywhere. And so like for you, do you feel like you're a foreigner in Taiwan? I do feel like I'm an outsider. I don't, I wouldn't say a foreigner, but I feel like I can't really fit in with the Taiwanese crowd. For me, I think it's more like when I start talking because I actually also have an accent when I speak Mandarin, which is kind of sad because on paper, I am not a foreigner in Taiwan. Right. On paper, I am a foreigner in the U.S., but my English is much better than my Mandarin. And so it's, it is, yeah, a bit of a struggle sometimes. And I think an interesting thing that, you know, about the fact of saying, oh, go back to where you came from or, or 
I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but has anyone asked you, but where are you really from? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because for me, I, I can't really say that would really apply to me in terms of being racist because I am actually from somewhere else. Right. So I, I, in a way, I almost feel like I don't have a right to, to say that, oh, that's racist. Like you're only saying that's because I'm Asian. Well, because I actually am from somewhere else, right? Right. Um, so do you from South Africa if like people are like, where are you from? No, because I don't actually feel like I'm from South Africa. I was born there, but moved when I was, before I even turned one. And so sometimes even I wish that I spoke English with a South African accent because that way it would make me feel like I actually am South African because I am on paper. I hold South African citizenship, but I almost feel like a South, a fake South African. (laughs) So yeah, I think it's a lot of complex identities, right? Sure. I mean, this is a whole other topic right. <laughs> to discuss about. You asked me how I would want an ally to show support and communicate with me. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? So this was actually my boss that did this. And she she's so great. Um, in so many ways, but I was on vacation and the Atlanta shooting happened while I was on vacation and she texted me and I hadn't really, I was disconnected from the internet and my phone and I wanted it to be that way for vacation. And so I didn't really know what was going on, but she reached out and she was like, I know you're on vacation and I don't want to bother you, but I want to address some of the anti-AAPI crimes that are happening now and just know that I'm sending love. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, thanks again, not realizing what had just happened in like the news. Um, But I think that was like a great way of like, you know what? I realize you're on vacation. You don't have to engage with me, but just know I'm here for you if you need it. And so that's, that was really powerful. And I think that, you know, and it, and it relieves the burden on you to be like, oh, well, let me tell you about my experiences and relive a lot of the traumas or let me educate you or, you know, having, having the sort of victimized population having to play a role in, you know, educating other people or bettering others. So I felt like that was a really great, just like, hey, I'm here for you if you need me just like, let me know kind of thing. Um, and I'm here to support you. And so that I really appreciated. Um, of course I've had, um, during my meltdown when, (laughs) when I just completely had like a huge kind of panic attack after my friend had her, had a a knife pulled out on her and her medical student. Um, I like called a couple of friends and just like sobbed on the phone. I was just like incredibly raw. Like who are people that I can talk to because I need to talk to them. Um, one was Asian, two were white, but it, it was great because they were like, you know, I'm here for you if you need anything. Even, even my Asian friend was like, 
you know, I want to check up on you too, because we're in this together. We're part of the same community and I want to make sure you're okay too. And so that I also really appreciated and use that opportunity just to be like really raw and be like, I'm terrified, right? Like I have never felt this level of fear before for my life or my safety or for my community's lives and safety. Um, and so in, you know, they were, they were incredibly sweet. And, um, and again, I was the one that sort of reached out to them. So I think it was a little bit different, but the one that was, she's also in the same city that I'm in now. She was like, let me know if you need me to accompany you wherever. She's like, I know that this isn't the solution for systemic racism and your fears of your safety, but the least I can do is go to HEB with you. The least I can do is go study at this coffee shop with you. The least I can do is, you know, like, and I think that was also incredibly powerful um, because I didn't even realize I needed that. I was just like, I'm so scared. I don't feel like I could go out. I don't feel like, you know, I feel like people are looking at me because I look a certain way now. And she was like, I get it. And I'm here for you to protect you. And that was just one, I felt like so much relief in that moment, understanding that I have great friends and people that will care for me and protect me. And two, just having the ability to externally process some of that fear and understanding that it's a safe space. And I think that all of those are important. And, you know, I've had a couple of people that have like since reached out to be like, hey, you know, how are things going? And then I myself, you know, just, you know, my community, at least especially in West Texas, like, hey, how are you feeling in conservative West Texas being Asian? Um, and so I think like through that developed like a community of allies, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> Pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. Like that you were able to feel in a way like protected, right? And supported. A portion of our conversation after this is left out as it had gotten quite long and a bit more personal. Right before the next and final part of the chat, I had talked about how one message of support from a friend who isn't Asian particularly resonated in the sense that they related to my level of fear through their lived experiences. And that's the context for where we pick back up. Even though they're not us or not Asian American or not black or whatever, but still can understand that level of fear. And I think I like sort of grappled with that a little bit, like, cause I don't think I understood that level of fear with my, you know, black friends until recently feel like a little bit of an imposter being like, I'm an ally, I'm an ally, but how, how much of an ally was I, if I had no concept of that. Right. And this is like a huge part of their lives. Like I have a, my, my friend, um, like she lived in a, she's moved out of West Texas now, but her and her husband, both black, like lived in a very rich uh, neighborhood in West Texas. They couldn't leave their house, you know, when the sun was dark, you know, the sun was down. And 
he really tried not to wear a hoodie when it was cold and she would have to be super friendly with all the neighbors to show everybody that they're not malicious, you know, like it, it, she had to go out of her way. And she was explaining this to me and I was just like, oh my God, I totally get it. But I didn't really get it, you know, until now, until I'm like, oh, I do actually have to change my way of life because of how I look. And I think that's like a super frustrating part, right? Like one that I didn't embarrassingly didn't recognize that in my friends before and thought I knew, but I didn't know. But two, that like, we have to sort of change our way of lives just for kind of survival. And that makes me so annoyed. I like get so frustrated about it because it's like, well, I want to have the same privileges as that white dude walking down the street. Why can't people, you know, keep their comments to themselves or not stalk me at Sprouts or whatever? Yeah. And so... I think that is my main point of frustration is, you know, I want to, yeah, I want to go back and live the life that I was living, but it's, you know, it's also hard. I mean, I also don't have the same privileges just being a female compared to a a guy. So anyway, I'm like digressing, but (laughs) well, get very annoyed. <laughs> no, I, I, I am annoyed too. But I think what you just said about like going back to the way you were able to live before, right? Right. But the thing is, I feel like this was always there, right? And this, it's just heightened now. Like right. this didn't just come out of nowhere. So right. even though what's happened has obviously been really hard and, and, makes me feel super heavy and awful at the same time it's it's like I finally feel recognized like Mm -hmm. I'm glad that this is finally coming to the forefront I mean I'm glad that I think Congress recently passed this act right Mm -hmm. um focused on addressing anti-Asian hate crimes right that's true I know and I was like you know, reflecting, I was talking to my friend about this, like, I feel like there's so much around racism and that sort of, I feel like there's almost been a recent resurgence of white supremacy. You know, my friend was saying that white supremacy is like a bully because people felt validated to vocalize their white supremacist mentality or ways or thoughts And now people are sort of like putting a mirror up to them and having them reflect on some of these very like horrible things that they're saying. And it's like a bully trying to lash out, like he's getting cornered by all of these other people and he's lashing out more and more and more. And so my friend was saying like, oh, well, you know, eventually hopefully it will go away because enough people will sort of jump the bully and the bully will stop lashing out. And I'm like holding on to that hope because I feel like it's just, yeah, it's just, there's so much 
unfairness in the world and there's so much like inequality that is happening that it's and so much ignorance too um that like we need to we need to be better as a country as a world you know we need to be more inclusive and more equitable um and embrace our diversities but it's hard to see it so aggressively in media now I think, because I think you're right. Like, you know, this has always sort of either happened at a microaggression level or um, at a macro level too. It was just like not widely, I guess, publicized um, in, in all, you know, types of racial hate crimes, right. Against um, black people, against, you know, even like some of the immigrants from the Latinx countries or Mexico and also, you know, anti-Asians hate crimes. And so I think that, I'm hoping that this is, it may, it may get worse before it gets better, but I'm hoping that it's just getting out its steam and then finally we'll like cave into a more harmonic and, uh, and peaceful sort of society with everybody who looks all kinds of different things, but hopefully that's my, that's my optimism, I think coming out. That's a really beautiful way to put it. And I'm, I'm optimistic too. I believe in that saying, I can't remember the exact words of it, but that you, when you take one step forward, you take two steps back or something mm. like that. Yeah. Um, and some people make that analogy with the fact that, you know, after we had Obama for two terms, we got Trump. So with progress, I, I guess, you know, there, there will be setbacks um, along the way, but I do think, yeah, the, just the greater conversation about this and not just anti-Asian racism, but all, yeah, all kinds of racism and inequities um, that this pandemic has highlighted that, that always existed, but just further exacerbated during the pandemic, again, hopefully we'll bring about more real change and not just in the U.S. either. Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll have some, you know, new perspectives to learn when yeah. I move to another country. Um, all about it. I'm so curious to learn. And I want to yeah. come visit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Uh, on that note... Yes. Is there any parting words you wanted to share? Mm, parting words to anybody else who is listening. Don't be afraid to have uncomfortable conversations and going in with an open mind. I think that is something that I've learned sometimes the hard way in the last couple of years just to be able to engage with people that may not share your perspectives, but to still listen because everybody comes from a different place. And the only way we can be better versions of ourselves is if we have those kind of conversations and be uncomfortable. That's the only way I feel like we can grow. And so I encourage everybody to have uncomfortable conversations 
and to not shy away from them because we are so used to our own echo chambers and it needs to not be that way anymore. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. And I've been trying to abide by that myself. Like, I think, yeah, I also shied away from them if I felt a certain way and not wanting to make it uncomfortable or awkward, you know, for other people. Right. You know, you should have your podcast as well. You are very well spoken. Aw, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nah, that's all you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Margaret for having this heavy, but at the same time, really cathartic conversation with me. The truth is that I've been pretty anxious about releasing this episode because I'm not someone who is typically vocal on a public platform about topics like this that are more sensitive in nature and that affect me personally. But at the same time, I want to show the importance of speaking up, especially since for so long I did not do so. With all that said, I encourage you to take a look at the links in the episode notes where I included some materials that I mentioned earlier, as well as a link to an article that my friend wrote about the health effects of anti-Asian violence. If you'd like to get in touch to share your thoughts on this episode or the podcast as a whole, please do so over email or Instagram at nomadcitizen. And if you haven't already, please make sure to follow or subscribe to Stories from a Nomadic Citizen on whichever podcast platform you are using. Until next time.